Morning, guys. Well, here we are, the morning we've all been waiting for. Figure out this thing called the millennium. Boy, that's going to be fun, isn't it? This is uh, one of those academic mornings like it was uh, back in the fall when we were talking about the different frameworks. Uh, so put on your seatbelts. Well, we want to say congratulations to all of our Roman Catholics here. Got yourself a new pope. Young guy. Ready to go. Yeah, you know, Presbyterians, they've, they've thought about getting senior ministers at 78 as well because they wouldn't have to put up with them so long. And the Roman Catholics really have, us, have it all over us on that. 78 years old, start your ministry as Pope. That's really something else, isn't it? Well, uh, he's, uh, he's, we know that he's quite a theologian. It'll be interesting to see what happens in a Roman Catholic church these days. I know you're all praying. Well, folks, uh, let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. We, are, we have now studied 19 chapters of Revelation. And all of you have been telling me how this book now is just so simple to you. You understand it completely after all these weeks of study. Uh, every time I look at it, I, I seem to get more confused. But it is such a joy to study it because we've seen the incredible themes that come through Revelation, even though we struggle to understand the details. And I've handed out to you this morning something that looks like that. Uh, with, and you can't read that. We're gonna, we'll work with much larger print here in just a moment. But that's what you're looking at. And here's what it is. We're going to read Revelation chapter 20. And then we're going to look at how we're supposed to understand what this millennium really is all about. And uh, we've had incredible debates over the centuries about the meaning of the millennium. And uh, we're going to solve it all right here in this room today. Well, let's look at Revelation 20 and read it and see what's happening. You remember that Jesus Christ has appeared in Revelation 19 on his white horse. And he has come to judge. And to he's destroyed uh, the beast, the false prophet. And now there's, there's one last one to take care of. It's called the dragon, Satan. Let's see what happens to him. But especially give notice to the mention of the thousand years of the millennium. Let's look at it, Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. 
They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city He loves. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. Now, next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the practical implications of each of these verses in the text. What we're going to try to do this morning, God helping us, is to look at these four views and try to understand what each view is saying. And then, hopefully, you'll be able to take all the things you've been hearing over your lifetime about premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, panmillennial, whatever it is. You know, panmillennial is that it all pans out in the end. Uh, and you'll be able to take all these things. I mean, there's some people that are so premillennial they won't even eat post-toasties. I mean, it's unbelievable how people can get so strong. But you'll be able to understand, hopefully, all these things that you've been hearing about the order and sequence of things in the end times and be able to recognize the framework from which that person is coming. That's so important. So that we don't end up debating primarily the details. Those can be debated. But let's debate the frameworks. And that's where a lot of guys get confused. It's because they have all these multitude of details that they, you know, what's a rapture and Gog and Magog and Armageddon and what a great white throne judgment. How do you fit all this in? Well, let's understand there are four basic frameworks. And once you understand the framework from which the person is coming, you can understand whether you agree or disagree and where your disagreement is. So you won't waste your time talking about the little details when you need to go to the heart of the matter. So hopefully this will help you simplify what you're hearing in your environment. These four frameworks are generally worked out in the Western church. You know, Americans uh, have been, and British, have been in the middle of a lot of, of, a lot of this. And uh, so it'll be helpful for us, especially in our culture. Now, what I'd like to do is really just take these each one at a time. And I'm, for the sake of legibility, I'm going to just put up one at a time like this. And what we're going to do is look at each of these categories on pre, pre-tribulational, premillennialism. Now, what is pre-tribulational, premillennialism? The four frameworks we're going to talk about have to do with the relationship between the return of Christ and the millennium. Did Christ come before the millennium? Or does he come after the millennium? Those who feel that Christ returns before the millennium are pre-millennial. Those who believe that Christ comes at the end of the millennium are post-millennial. And those who can't figure it out are amillennial. <laughs> Actually, we'll see that amillennialists are a form of post-millennialism. 
because they believe that Christ comes at the end of the millennium, whatever it is, uh, from their viewpoint. So let's look, first of all, at pre-millennialism, those believe, who believe that Christ comes before the millennium. And you've noticed in Revelation 19 and 20, there seems to be an immediate plausibility to that idea. We just got through looking at Christ coming back on his white horse, and then it appears we're moving right into the discussion about the millennium. So it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, to be premillennial. Now, what is a pre-tribulational millennialist? He is one who not only believes that Christ comes before the millennium, but he comes before the tribulation. And throughout our studies, we from time to time run across this word flipsis or tribulation. And we've spoken a little bit about how different people will view this. Some of us see the tribulation as being a continuing reality from the moment of the institution of the New Testament church, and really the Old Testament church too, all the way until the return of Christ. So that we're in the tribulation now. There does seem to be an intensity of the tribulation at the end. But nonetheless, we're in the tribulation. And certainly, we said months ago that those who were receiving this letter from John would have seen themselves as in the tribulation because they were being put to death for their faith. So certainly, they were being tribulated. But there are some who would say that the great tribulation, as mentioned earlier in Revelation, is a seven-year period. Uh, The great tribulation... Uh, which is a tribulation only for unbelievers. And that, furthermore, the church is raptured before the tribulation takes place. And furthermore, this view would say that all of Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 19 that we just finished all has to do with the great tribulation. So that those chapters in the Bible, those 15 chapters are only speaking about that seven-year period at the beginning of which the church is raptured out of it. So we're not even here for those 15 chapters. Now, that would be pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. And if you're familiar with the, the term dispensationalism, this would be consistently the view of dispensational theology. The meaning of the millennium is there is a literal 1,000-year period. The church is raptured beforehand. And at the same time, they would say the Spirit is withdrawn. The Spirit people, that is, believers in Jesus Christ, are withdrawn from the earth. This is at the beginning of the rapture. So you have a seven-year rapture, and then you have a 1,000-year millennium. Okay? Church is raptured at the beginning of those seven years. The ones who are left are tribulated. And then Christ comes back with his saints to reestablish his kingdom on the earth. And Israel is reestablished in Jerusalem. And the temple is being rebuilt. And sacrifices are offered. Now, dispensationalists would say that those sacrifices are not atoning. They are memorial sacrifices, recalling actually the work of Jesus Christ. So let's not, let's not uh, say that uh, dispensationalists are holding to the view that the temple is restored with effectual sacrifices being offered. Sacrifices are offered in their view, but only as memorials. So 
You can see then from this view, the pre-tribulational, Christ comes before the tribulation to receive His saints who are raptured up to be with Him. Seven years later, He comes back with His saints to reestablish His kingdom on the earth as it is now in Jerusalem in, and reestablishes Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, the advantage of this view is, among other things, is that you have the Old Testament promises being fulfilled right here in time and space as we know it, seemingly the way those promises were intended in the Old Testament. And we could go through the Old Testament with numerous promises. Number one, Abraham has promised a huge nation will come from him. The promises of the Davidic kingdom, that David's kingdom will rule over all, over all the earth. The promise that's in the Old Testament that God's people, Israel, will have that land in Israel. So the advantage of the millennial kingdom for the dispensational point of view is that there is a period in history when all of the Old Testament promises will find their fulfillment, including, for example, you read in Isaiah about the coming of Christ, that the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The child will crawl over the hole of the asp or the snake. It will be a time of tranquility and peace. Well, here is that period in which all of those Old Testament promises are fulfilled. So you see the sequence. And then uh, at the conclusion of the millennium will be this battle with Gog and Magog that we just read about in Revelation 20. Christ will come for judgment and there will be the resurrection of the wicked. Now, let me say from a dispensational point of view that you have, a, you have a first resurrection and a second resurrection you read about in Revelation 20 just there. From this point of view, first resurrection has to do with the resurrection of the righteous. And that would be those who are raptured and taken up at the beginning of the tribulation. That's the first resurrection of the righteous. The second resurrection, from this point of view, is the resurrection of of the wicked at the end of the millennium. So at the end of the millennium, the, the wicked will be raised for judgment. And they will be judged at what we just read was the great white throne judgment of God. And their deeds will all be revealed and they will be punished for them and put into the lake of fire along with the others who have gone there ahead of them. After the millennium, there will be the new heavens and the new earth and eternal rest. And we see that, of course, in Revelation 21 and 22. And the biblical rationale is quite simple. Revelation 20 follows Revelation 19. Duh! And there seems to be a clear sequence there with Christ coming in 19 and the eternal state in chapter 21 and 22. 20 in chapter 20 is right in the middle. And so the millennium seems clearly from this point of view to be a one why not 1,000 years? I mean, you know, they say, it says 1,000 years. Why not believe 1,000 years? And so it's a literal 1,000-year period in between. Now, the, dis the theological emphases, number one, definitely dispensational. Now, let me just say a couple of words about dispensationalism. Dispensationalism basically came to its clearest and fullest expression around the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. And basically, 
there are several things within dispensationalism that are important, but one of the things that we want to recognize is that with respect to God's plan of salvation, there are two different programs that God is working out. One has to do with the Jewish people, Israel, who are his chosen people. And what happens is we're going right along chronology with Abraham and Moses and David and all the promises that are given to them. Christ comes and offers himself to them as Messiah, and they reject him. Therefore, now Israel kind of goes into mothballs. And God turns to the Gentiles because the Jewish people, the elect, rejected their Messiah. And so now he goes to the Gentiles and he is gracious to them. And this is called in dispensational theology classically a parenthetical program. God's original program was with Abraham and his descendants. The church is a parenthesis, a New Testament church. And so he deals with the New Testament church and then raptures her out at the beginning of the rapture, of the beginning of the tribulation. He continues his work with the Jewish people through the tribulation. And in the millennium, he reestablishes a kingdom for the Jewish people, fulfilling all of his promises, and Jesus Christ, the Son of David, will rule. At that time, all the Jewish people will be given their opportunity, their second opportunity, to repent as they see the Son of David ruling in Jerusalem. And God will then pick up again His program with the Jewish people at the millennium, or really through the Great Tribulation and the millennium. So the church is a princess, and then they get raptured out. It's the age of the Spirit, the people of the Spirit, the non-Jewish, and they're taken care of in heaven. But then the earthly kingdom people, the, the Jews, whose program had been interrupted between the first coming of Christ and His and the rapture of the church and the second coming, then he picks up his program with the Jews again and fulfills his promises. Now, that's a fundamental aspect of dispensationalism. There are other aspects of dispensationalism that uh, are emphasized in this framework that I suppose we don't have time to deal with today. But uh, one of the key theological issues in dispensationalism is that the law is primarily in the Mosaic dispensation. Grace is in the New Testament dispensation. Now, there's such a thing as modified dispensationalism, fortunately, and uh, there's such a thing as modified covenantal theology too, fortunately, because most schools begin to recognize through the years that they maybe made some overstatements. And so these things have been modified. But in classical dispensationalism, it was basically said that in the Old Testament, God gave His way for folks to establish their relationship with Him, and it was through abiding in the law in the Old Testament. God gave His way in the New Testament of simply believing in Jesus Christ. Now, to some of us, we're saying, well, yeah, so. Well, the critique is this, that the New Testament makes clear, as does the Old that salvation has always been simply by the grace of God, by believing in Him and His promises. So in the Old Testament, you have law and grace. And in the New Testament, it's quite clear that yes, we're saved by believing in Jesus Christ, but we must also seek to obey the law. And uh, so the New Testament is also 
grace and law. And the grace and law go together in both covenants. So that would be one of the critiques, in my opinion, of dispensationalism, that in having two programs, they run the danger of having two plans of salvation and separating law and grace. Rather than one program, we'll look at this in just a moment, that, that combines law and grace throughout the ages, Old and New Testament alike. But a dispensational theology will always attend this view of pre-tribulational premillennialism, primarily based on apocalyptic biblical literature. You'll find that, that the, the real specialty uh, of pre-tribulational premillennialism is to deal with the specifics of Daniel and Revelation. And the case is largely made there. And then that framework is then taken to other aspects of the Scriptures. Now, everybody does this, so this is not peculiar to dispensationalism. You'll see that you see in your list there that every viewpoint has a portion of the Scriptures that they usually start with. Now, you know, I've already told you that I'm an idealist. And I'll go ahead and tell you now, I probably would be categorized as a non-millennialist. So you can see there from your chart, I probably start with the Pauline epistles, the, the, the teaching documents. And I run from there to the Gospels and the apocalyptic. I start with the epistolary framework, and that establishes my framework, and then I, I look at the details in other places. Now, that's not to make a priority out of any part of the Bible. It's all equally the Word of God. But I'm just being honest with you. My tradition has done that. And the reason I'm, I'm okay with it is because the epistles are teaching documents. They are doctrinaire. They are didactic. Apocalyptic, apocalyptic as we have seen for these months, is very pictorial, very representative, very difficult to figure out. So I've always been suspicious of starting there for a framework. But you're better off starting in a framework in the clearest documents that are in the Scriptures on these matters. And we'll, you'll see why in a moment why I think if you start with the Pauline epistles, you're probably going to end up in a different place. A literal fulfillment in Israel of all of the promises of God. This is peculiar to this viewpoint. That all of the Old Testament promises will find their literal fulfillment in history as we know it now in the nation of Israel. That is peculiar to this point of view. You'll see that how important that is in a few moments. Practically, a couple of things. One is very high anticipation. And you know, if you read any Hal Lindsey books, we can have very high anticipation. We can get really worked up over things, feel have a real high sense of urgency, and have everybody wired up. Well, look, that's pretty good. Uh, if, if Christ is coming back, I think we should be pretty urgent about it. So I would say there's a strength here, a characteristic, that has everybody thinking about it and anticipating it. Now, when I say pessimistic toward culture and toward the future, some of that is, in my opinion, helpful and some of it is not. The part that's helpful is that there is in this viewpoint, a, I think, a clear understanding that this world is not our home. And that it's really going to hell in a handbasket. And they're really clear about that. And I don't see anybody who's propounding this point of view who gets real confused about whether this world is my home. 
So that's positive. Because this world is going to end up in an ash heap. And it is silly and ungodly and destructive of any one of you who will base your happiness, your long-term happiness, on things in this world. Your clothing, your car, your house, your wife, your children, anything in this life. And this viewpoint is clear to show that. Where it turns out to be rather negative in a couple of ways. Sometimes, and I'm not saying this is a direct teaching, I'm just saying by observation over the past hundred years, it seems to be a practical, unintended consequence. One of the unintended consequences, in my opinion, has been a withdrawal from culture rather than an engagement with culture. Let me just give you one example. There are many. In the 1920s, we suffered what is known as the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And those who had, some of those who had a very high view of the Bible, they were typically of a pre-tribulational, premillennial persuasion, believed that the Bible, the Bible says the world is going to hell in a handbasket very soon and that it's irredeemable began to withdraw in the educational realm. And we have Bible colleges sprinkled all over the country, and they do a lot of good. But negatively, what has happened is these Bible colleges sprung up teaching the Bible and Bible doctrine and ministry skills at the undergraduate level, but abandoned largely the liberal arts. Had English courses, not a whole lot in history, not a whole lot in philosophy, not a whole lot in the, in the fine arts, and really focused the whole undergraduate education on Bible and Bible doctrine, church history and so on, almost like a junior varsity seminary. Now, there is great value to studying these things. And some of you may have been to Bible college and some of your kids may be in Bible college. And for any given individual, I'm, I'm not opposed to Bible college. I think it would be a very fine. Moody Bible Institute's a very, very fine institution. I'm grateful for her and many others like her. But as a movement in the nation, what it did was to make a statement that what's really important is the Bible and Bible doctrine and church history and ministry courses. And by inference, not history not the fine arts, not other things that, are, that were historically included in the liberal arts. And so if you look at the Bible college movement in America, it's almost all pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. So that's the reason I'm saying that was an unintended consequence. Now, what you found in the Bible college movement, uh, the fundamentalist Bible college movement over the past 30 or 40 years, they've started to offer undergraduate degrees in the liberal arts. Let me give you a classic example of what I'm talking about. A college that I love dearly, Crichton College. Some of you are at Crichton. Crichton started off as a Bible college by pre-tribulational, pre-millennial Christians. Over the years, they have said, you know what? We want to have a broader influence on our society. We want to change this city. And let me tell you something. That college is going to change this city. 
And part of that mentality has been to bring in the liberal arts and offer a bachelor's degree in the liberal arts because we've said the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God and his kingdom is to transform all of society. And you can't do that unless you engage society. So some of the pessimism that's endemic to this point of view can have unintended consequences that I think need to be challenged. And so if you are a dispensationalist this morning, I would say just watch out for that in your movement, that it not become a movement that retreats from engaging in the world. Generally speaking, uh, this is what I see as a potential danger. They are typically futurist in their hermeneutical framework that we studied in November. And you can refer back to those notes and see what we mean by futurist. So they see the events that are in Revelation, the book of Revelation primarily having to do with the future. That's consistent in this movement. And then you see some of the names involved that you'll recognize. There's an intricate coordination of Daniel and Revelation. That's a strength. I would say the weaknesses, when you look at texts like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, and here I go as one who says we ought to really probably start building our framework in the Pauline literature. When you look at those, those chapters and other moments where we're talking about the end times, it just seems to be so simple. You know, we're in the age of the Spirit right now. At the end of this age, Jesus is going to come and finish up this, clean up this mess and introduce the new age. That's the kind of picture you get. Uh, introduce the, the, uh, the, the eternal age. That's the picture you get in the epistles. And I, I, I have trouble seeing how these complex, intricate uh, systems are accommodating that. So it tends to be very complex. And when I say scientific, I mean modernist, that we're looking at the Scriptures as though it were a scientific handbook on exactly what's going to happen and in reading apocalyptic literature rather than reading it within its own genre as a literary video, which we saw earlier. It's reading it as a scientific or history textbook that's going to tell us exactly what sequence and so on. So that would be its possible dangers. It tends to be pessimistic toward culture and the future. And there are two plans, one for Israel, one for the church. Now, in terms of this pessimism, let me close out this part of it with this. Sometimes in pre-tribulational, pre-millennial outlook, there is a fear and dread among Christians about the coming of Christ. And if you read the Hal Lindsey stuff or look at the, the videos and movies that are put out from that perspective, it's awesome, but it's also terrifying. And sometimes it's not the kind of movie you want to take a 12-year-old to. And especially when you think about the rapture. You see, from this perspective, the rapture occurs at the beginning of the tribulation. And it's known historically in this movement as a secret rapture. It's silent. Nothing's said. You could wake up one morning and people are missing. You could be driving down the street and all of a sudden half the city's gone. And you don't know what happened. It was a secret rapture, that first resurrection of the saints who are taken out of this world. Now, I have heard so many of my friends through the years that I've been a Christian, about 30 years, I've had so many of them tell me that when they were kids, brought up on this 
sequence. Once again, an unintended consequence. When they were kids, they would wake up in the morning, and if they couldn't find their mom or dad, they were terrified, thinking the rapture had occurred. Of course, they were left behind. And that's the title of the book, isn't it? Left Behind. Let me just say, there's a problem with this. Number one, when the saints are taken up, this ain't going to be silent. (laughs) It's going to be a very loud event. The whole cosmos is going to know about it. The last trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise. And believe me, it's going to be like lightning all over the world. It's going to be the biggest event you ever saw. No, nothing secret about this at all. But secondly, I just want to say this to you. If you happen to be one of those kids, or big kids, or if you find in your heart that because of your millennial perspective, you find yourself dreading the coming of Christ and you're fearful, I don't know what your theology is. I'm just telling you it's wrong. If your understanding of the end times leads you or your children to dread the coming of Christ, you got the wrong picture, unless you're an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, of course you should dread it. That's the reason you should come to faith in Jesus Christ this very morning before you leave this room. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should never dread His coming. He's coming for you. Did you not see in chapter 19 this thing's a wedding banquet? You're going to dread your wedding banquet? You nuts? Everything's going to be cleared up for you. The sin is gone. The problems are erased. Tears are gone. Mourning and sorrow is over. You're perfectly healthy. you got your body back in an eternal state, and you'll be doing whatever you dang well please to do for the rest of eternity. Is that bad? No. Good. So if you're dreading the coming of Christ, you have the wrong perspective. Now, you can choose any of these you want. I'm just telling you, if that perspective is leading you to that conclusion, you got the wrong one. So keep searching. My fear is that sometimes this perspective leads to that. And that's the reason I'm suspicious, deeply suspicious of whether it's right. Because it's leading to these unintended consequences that are not healthy. Now, let me show you this. What? What's that? Well, let's walk through it just a minute. We're going to go through the other ones more rapidly, but this is the more dominant one in our culture, so I want to be sure you understand what they're saying. Here's Israel. Here's Christ coming at the birth and the cross. He then ascends into heaven. Christ's ascension actually is right here, this line going up. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon His church. You see the Jewish nation down here because the princess of the church is now going to take over until the rapture. So we're in a parenthetical period. Jewish chronology has been put on hold, and the nation's progress is mothballed. But you see why this perspective gets very excited about 1947, 1948. Because they say, uh huh, uh huh, see, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're coming. Mm -hmm. See that nation? Getting ready. And so. Then you see here under this model, the church is raptured when Christ comes for His saints. They have the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven. During the tribulation, which is known as the trouble of Jacob from this perspective, because it's an Israel problem, the only people who are left behind that that are meant to be saved are generally the Jewish nation. There will be others, but generally the Jewish nation. Then Christ comes back here what known as, this is known as the rapture. This is the revelation. He comes at this moment, and this would actually be his third coming. Comes here with his saints to establish his kingdom on the earth. 
You get to the end of the thousand years and Satan is let loose. He's bound here at the beginning of the millennium. Then Satan is let loose toward the end. You have the battle of Gog and Magog and all the rest. And finally, Satan is thrown uh, into the pit. There is the resurrection of the righteous here. The resurrection of the wicked here. And then they are judged by Christ, who now in His forthcoming judges the wicked and opens the books and assigns them to the lake of fire. That is a premillennial, pre-tribulational viewpoint upon which most of us cut our teeth. Okay? All right, let's look, let's look at the next one. And we are going to move more rapidly. This is post-tribulational or what's known as historic premillennialism. That is, we believe that Christ came before the millennium, but after the tribulation. So, from this perspective, you'll see, once again, Israel here. Christ ascends. The Spirit comes. And we are in the church age. And at the end of this age, there will be a seven-year great tribulation. And we'll go through it, says this perspective, differently from the other. And then Christ will come and He will establish His reign for a thousand years. And then once again, the battle of Magog and Satan is let loose at the end. Satan is bound here. Satan is let loose here. The promises in premillennialism, historic premillennialism, the promises are to the Jewish people here, but they're also, you see, I've listed here in theological emphases, it's a dual fulfillment. Yes, the promises are clearly given to the church. I was just reading George Eldon Ladd, who is a key historic, 20th century historic premillennialist. And George Eldon Ladd sounds an awful lot like an all-millennialist. He'll go and spend most of his presentation showing you how the promises of God in the Old Testament apply to the church. But then he'll say they also apply to Israel. And his key text is Romans 11:26, and I wish we had time to talk about that where Paul says, and all Israel will be saved. Paul goes through an elaborate argument about what God is doing in salvation with Jews and Gentiles. And he gets to the end, and he says, so all Israel will be saved. And Eldon, George Eldon Ladd says, you see, he's saying that yes, there is the fulfillment of promises in the church, but he's also saying there's fulfillment of promises to Israel. And this millennial period is the period when the son of David, uh, Jesus Christ, reigns on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, as promised, giving to Israel all of her promises in that period. And then He comes to judge at the end. And I would say this viewpoint and the millennial viewpoint, I'm sorry, the amillennial viewpoint, find a lot of kinship. You'll see that this tends to be futuristic primarily, but also has an idealist framework of thinking as well. And by idealist, we simply mean that the promises of God are being interpreted in a way that points primarily to the church in the eternal state, as we'll see in just a moment. So there's a mixture, there's a blending of viewpoints with the historic premillennialist. And uh, frankly, I think this view avoids some of the unintended consequences of the dispensational point of view. The strengths are still, there's a natural reading of Revelation 20 and the Old Testament promises. 
The weaknesses are, uh, in my view, you take texts like Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 and many, many other texts where clearly the promises of God in toto seem to be applied in toto to the church. And I would say that I'm not sure that George Ellen Ladd has taken the preponderance of gospel and epistle literature on that question into account. But it is a somewhat simpler framework. You can see there are really now only two comings of Christ in His second coming. He comes at the beginning of the millennium and He comes to judge at the end of the millennium. So you have His first coming and then you have two second comings in historic premillennialism. All right, to move along. Let's look at amillennialism. And you can see how simple this is. Let's go to the bottom of the page first. And, of course, this is one reason I like it. Simpletons always like simplicity. So I'm drawn to this. But I'm also drawn to it because it seems to fit what the Apostle Paul is saying. And the Apostle Paul teaches, from a didactic point of view, more clearly than anybody else in the Bible about what's going to happen at the end. And it seems to be very simple. So that's the reason I'm drawn to his what we would call the Pauline eschatology. As a matter of fact, a professor in the early part of the 20th century that I admire so much, Dr. Geharis Voss, wrote a book entitled The Pauline Eschatology. And I admit he influenced me a lot as well 25 years ago. But you have Israel, you have the coming of Christ, His ascension, and the coming of the Spirit. And rather than having two programs, rather than having promises applied to two communities, It's very simple. That when Christ came, He came proclaiming the kingdom. And the kingdom in Isaiah was to be a kingdom not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. So the Old Testament view of the kingdom was that all the nations should be streaming to Israel. And the big eschatological hope in Isaiah is found in Isaiah 60, 61, and so on, when all the nations will ultimately stream to Jerusalem and bow down before the king. So in an Old Testament perspective, you had the inclusion of the Gentiles. It's just that they were disobedient and cultic and narrow-minded, just like we tend to be, and ethnically exclusive, and they didn't go out to the world as they were told to. So Jesus comes to fulfill what was commanded in the Old Testament, and He forces the church to be international the way she should have been in the first place. Because Abram was told, you are blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. So Jesus Christ is the perfect and full fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to the world. Noah, when the Noahic covenant was made, was for all peoples. Abraham was for all peoples. Moses and David, it was intended to be a kingdom for all peoples, but it wasn't. So Jesus came scandalizing Israel by speaking about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Why did they try to throw Him off a cliff when He preached His first sermon in His hometown in Luke chapter 4? They tried to throw Him off the cliff when He said that the Gentiles will be included. They were rabidly opposed to that. They were very ethnically exclusive. And so Jesus came to fulfill what was said in the Old Testament. It's very simple. There's one people of God. And He started with the Jewish people. Now when you turn to Romans 9-11, through 11 in particular, 
this elaborate argument I was talking about, what Paul says is that you have an olive tree. That's the Jewish people. When they reject Messiah, whack! They're cut off. And you have a stump there. And this is Isaiah language. He talks about a stump. When God comes to judge, He cuts off the disobedient and leaves the stump. When Jesus came, just like an Old Testament prophet, He came to judge, whack! The unbelieving group was cut off out of unbelief. And you have the stump left. Well, now what do you do? You take these wild and crazy Gentiles, these pagan worshipers, you lead them to the Messiah and graft them into the stump. What stump? The stump of Israel. There's one tree. We're grafted into it. Then the argument in Romans 11 is, don't give up on those Jewish branches that got cut off. Don't despise them. Don't hold them into contempt. Don't cease to evangelize them. Because, Paul says, God in His grace can graft back in old branches that got whacked off. And He'll graft them right back into that one tree. You see how simple? One tree. So we are all into one tree, which is one people of God, one covenant, one program, one set of promises. No parentheses. Don't call me a parenthesis if you don't mind. I am grafted in. I'm a wild Gentile with light skin. I'm grafted into an olive tree with people who used to have noses like mine and skin darker than mine. And I'm grafted in now as one family with those people. I'm a true Israelite. Through faith in the seed of Abraham, Jesus, I become a child of Abraham. That's the way Paul explains it in Galatians. So this simple plan is we're all together. And every Jew who's a true Jew believes in the Messiah. Or he's not a true Jew. He's whacked off. He's out there in synagogues and other things out there. He's called. He needs to come into the church. And I, as one who was a pagan, and was, you know, my, my ancestors were out there on the, you know, these Nordic people on the sea, killing people and raping and pillaging. Those were my people. Well, I got converted, my family, and we were grafted into this tree. And now all those promises that were given to Abraham apply to me because through faith I got grafted into this family. I'm adopted. And so all the promises apply to me through adoption. And so what happens is you see from this perspective the tribulation that's spoken of in Revelation 4 all the way through 19 has to do with right now. And the greater tribulation will come at the end. We've seen an intensity at the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon comes at the end of this period as does Gog and Magog. And you say, well, how... If you look at the sequence of Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, how can you say that Christ is going to come at the end of this period? If you're calling this a millennium, which is what I'm doing, this marked in red, the amillennialist is saying, the amillennial period is the church age. It's a figure of speech like a lot of other figures of speech in Revelation, speaking about the church age. Because Christ has bound Satan. You see the binding of Satan in Revelation 20? Well, don't you see it in Luke's Gospel as well? And Jesus said, how can a man come in and steal a man's goods unless he's bound the man in the house? He says, I bound Satan? Jesus said that. He, he was explaining how he was casting out demons. Because I've taken over. i bound the evil one. And he will no longer blind the nations. So therefore, go into all the world because Satan has been bound. He cannot blind the nations anymore. And this intentionality from the Old Testament is now going to take over the world. And that's what Jesus is saying. 
So that's the reason the amillennials are saying, don't you realize we're in an age of power? We're in an age of strength. This is the church age and the age of the Spirit. And this is the intermediate period that's being discussed. And then he comes at the end, and the amillennials will say there's a general resurrection. The wicked and the righteous are raised for judgment. The righteous to eternal life because our record is clean because of what Jesus has done for us. And the wicked to eternal punishment because they will bear their sins on themselves. Now you say, how does that fit Revelation 20? This is the big bugaboo for amillennialism. Because it does look as though everything sequentially fits from the premillennial perspective. Here's what the amillennialist says. Did you notice when we were going through Revelation that we would, like a wave on the shore, crash on the shore, recede, come forward again, recede, that several times we recycled history? You remember this. What the amillennialist is saying, and it may be one of his more difficult points, but he's saying things recycle at 20 verse 1. Not to go back in detail about the, God's judgments on the earth, but to emphasize this final act. But it's a re, uh, it is a recur, a recurring of all of history. So that's the amillennial perspective that when he says, and I saw in verse 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 20, that this is a recapitulation of history as we've seen six other times in Revelation, and this is the seventh recapitulation. Now, that's the all-millennial argument. I think it's the weakest point of their argument. But that's what's being said. It's simple, it's big picture, and it finds all the fulfillment in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's amillennialism. Lastly, postmillennialism. Uh, you see that it is just simple. It's, it's much like amillennialism, except saying that the 1,000 years are typically um, literal, and it is not merely the church age. It is a period of distinctive prosperity for the church. Now, for example, the Puritans who established this country were largely postmillennialists. And when you read the language about the city set on a hill and about the new Israel, all this language that's used by the Puritans is postmillennial language. God, this is it. This is God's great act that by establishing the new Israel in the colonies, this is the beginning of the end. And this, and see all the language about Christian country, God's special people, God's elect that's in our history is post-millennial. This is God's great act. We are His people. We're going to usher in the kingdom. You find with post-millennialism, as I've mentioned here, it's reconstructionist. It sees all of society being transformed. And all the nations coming under the sound of the Gospel, being converted, coming under the law of God, and reconstructing all of its infrastructure. There will be peace and justice and righteousness and racial equity and sharing of property. There will be a, a, a resounding submission to the law of God in the nations. And we'll see this begin to move in a very dramatic way. This is postmillennialism. And you see some of the people that are postmillennial. It's quite impressive. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, one of our favorite preachers, Matthew Henry. These people got excited about a literal period at the end of history that was going to, at the end of which, 
Christ would be enthroned as king over the universe. Now, you, once again, you say, how could they do that with Revelation chapter 20? Same way. They see a recapitulation at verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, lastly, we've got three minutes. Let me do this with you. Believe it or not, we all agree. You say, what? Sure didn't look like it. Well, let me tell you what we agree on. Number one, he's coming back. Everybody agrees on that. And I want to tell you something, gentlemen. That's far more important than some of these technical distinctions I'm talking about this morning. I'm, I'm, I think it's important for us to, to know, have a theological framework, be able to understand our own age and the interpretations of the Bible that are going on in our own age. But it's not nearly as important as that right there. Everybody who believes the Bible believes that. All four of those views believe this. And they believe you must wait. And you must wait expectantly and watchfully and prayerfully. Now, there may be some unintended consequences to have us thinking the wrong way about the end times and all kinds of things like that. But we all agree. We're to be living a life that waits expectantly for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be living a life that is already ready. We are ready for Him. The life is ready to be presented to Him. And our life is faith in Jesus Christ. We're trusting in Him. And we'll put our trust there and let it rest there. We're ready. And every one of us this morning should be ready to go. Should be ready to meet the King today. If you're not ready, talk to me afterwards. You've got to get ready. Everybody agrees on this. Everybody who reads the Bible and believes it believes you should be ready. And you should be ready in these ways. We all believe that every human being is going to be resurrected. Some believe at the beginning of the millennium the righteous will be, or at the rapture of the righteous and at the end the wicked. Some, like myself, believe it's going to be the resurrection of everybody at the end of the millennium, uh, which is now. Uh, there are different views on that. But all of us agree that everybody is going to get their body back at one point, and you will face the judgments of God in your body for all the deeds done in the body. You need a Savior because you're going to face Him in your body to account for all the things done in your body, including your thoughts. And there's only one way to account and get through, and that is by trusting in Jesus Christ whose record is perfect. And thirdly or fourthly, we believe that every human being will be judged. No one will be excused. No one will be said, oh, well, you never had really as good a chance as old Joe over here, so we'll let you through. No, everybody's going to be judged for the deeds done in the body. No excuses, no escape. Believers will go to heaven. We all believe this. All four views, everybody who believes the Bible says, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you really put your life in His hands, you give your life over to Him, you trust Him, you're going to heaven. It's that simple. And some of you are having a hard time believing it's that simple. It's that simple. Believe in me and you'll have everlasting life. Can it be any simpler than that? Believe in me. Trust in me, and you are going to experience the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. It's that simple. And I just say to you, are you going to be that foolish? How long are you going to hold out? How long are you going to spend your life not believing in Him? Believe in Him. Find out what that means. Put your life in His hands. You say, it's just so complex, Pastor. I've been listening to you. You've got all these ideas. I don't understand that. But it's real simple. Give all that you know about yourself to whatever you know about God. All that you know about yourself to whatever you know about God. That's trusting in God. It's that simple. 
You can do that. Whether you've never heard of the gospel before in your life, you can do that. Lastly, we all agree the Bible is true. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> you all believe the Bible is true and you disagree all the time. But we disagree on what we call minor doctrines. And we shall continue to do so until Jesus comes back and explains to everybody that amillennialism was correct. <laughs> and Let's pray. Father, send us on our way, realizing that the Bible is complex and simple. And the things that are most important for us are simple. We also delight ourselves in, in studying the complexities because we're studying You and Your ways and Your will. So make us forever students. But give us the eternal rest in our souls right now that belongs to people who know the simple truth. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Amen.